I think this is an amazing time to be alive. Private citizens are going to outer space. Cars are able to drive themselves to places. All kinds of crazy things that our grandparents would never have imagined. I love hearing about the advances in science and technology. And what we're talking about today might seem like it's always been around, but it's actually fairly new. We're talking about the idea of surrogacy. Being a surrogate mother means you carry someone else's baby for them. And the first surrogate pregnancy just happened in 1985. Scientists and doctors just figured this out recently, during my lifetime. We're talking today with Emily. She lives in Canada, and she was a surrogate. I could tell when we first spoke that she was kind of an upbeat, positive person. I asked her, what made you want to be a surrogate? Um, I, I had just decided I was done having my own children, and that's typical of surrogates. Usually they're, they're done having their own families, and uh, I knew that I personally didn't uh, want to have any of my own children, but I was young and healthy, and, and I uh, am happy to work in a job that would allow me to do this kind of thing, so I just decided that why not? I, I, can, I can do it. I can give somebody else a baby. I can do that. I can, I can do this. <laughs> all right. Well, I have to admit, before doing this episode, I didn't really know much at all about surrogacy. So I had a few questions for Emily, and I found out there are two types of surrogate. So I was a gestational surrogate. That means that the sperm and egg from the couple, or if it's a same-sex couple, they have an egg donor. They create an embryo in their clinic, and then that embryo is transferred into my uterus. So a gestational has no biological connection to the baby at all. Traditional is a lot less common now because of complications that can happen with it, but a traditional surrogate is biologically related to the baby. So they're just using a sperm uh, donor or the sperm of the intended father and using your own egg in, in your uterus. However, it is really not common anymore because that can create some legal problems and, and issues down the road for custody and things like that. As you might imagine, going into something like this requires a lot of paperwork and a lot of preparation. There's a lot of application processes and online surveys and you have to fill everything out and they, they kind of wanted a small essay for me to describe why I wanted to do what I wanted to do and there's a lot of medical testing. I had to do a lot of blood work and, and stamp tissue samples and tracking and timing and there's there's a lot of that I had to uh, work with the lawyer to develop a contract I had to have a full psychological test uh, as well to make sure I think they do that just to make sure that you're kind of going into it for the right reason you're you kind of have the right emotional stability to be able to do what you're doing and because it's a long process it's not just an overnight thing so you have to really commit to it for a while and then as things kind of progressed and you start getting closer to a transfer, there's a lot more testing, there's a lot more blood work and, and uh, urine testing and 
Um, I had to do a few uh, internal tissue samples to try to figure out what day was the very best day for the possibility of a successful transfer. That just sounds like a whole lot of work, not to mention having to be pregnant for nine months. So with all of that, I wondered, what does Emily get for all her effort? I mean, does a surrogate get paid for doing this? Well, it depends on where you live. I'm in Canada, and here in Canada, it's illegal to be paid. You cannot be compensated for being a surrogate. It has to be considered altruistic. There can be no compensation. And then in the States, you, you typically they are compensated. Uh, between, from the research I've found, between fifty and 80000 for a surrogacy. So today, we're going to chat with Emily as she takes us on this journey of when she decided to be a surrogate mother for a young couple there in Canada. She had never done this before, but she had some basic expectations of how it was supposed to work. But what actually happened was not what she expected at all. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds. Experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. 
new episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. The couple was Sarah and Brady, and and they had applied to the agency, and you had applied to the same agency, and that's how you got connected. That's right, yeah. The agency is called Surrogacy in Canada Online. Uh, they had applied. They were already part of it and had been for a number of months. Similarly to most couples or singles who are on there, they wait for a pretty long time. And then I, I had applied, and... They were one of the couples that reached out to me after I had, after my profile went live. And we just emailed back and forth and kind of told a little bit about ourselves and where we were at in our lives and what we were kind of looking for. And they explained to me why they were looking for a surrogate. And I kind of talked about why I wanted to be a surrogate. And then that lasted for mm, probably a month a month and a half of just chatting back and forth. And then we decided to meet. We went for coffee. They came to my hometown. Um, so I, I chose a couple that is in my province of Ontario. They, they weren't international. International uh, surrogacy adds a different spin on things. So it was, it was nice that they were able to come to me and they were able to be there for a lot of the, the, the important things. So anyway, yeah, they came to me and we met for coffee and it was great and we we chatted for a couple hours and they were lovely and wonderful and I just right away I just I wanted to give them all the babies I just wanted to if I could make a baby overnight I would have and given it to them like they were just wonderful wonderful people that's got to make a big difference when you feel so comfortable and are an emotional bond with the yeah, couple yeah. yeah for sure I think it I think it would have been a lot tougher to especially to go through the whole process if you weren't close um i think i think it would be a lot tougher to be not so close so what was the routine once the pregnancy began how often did you go for checkups how often did you meet with them what was your uh, what was your process there i'll start a bit before the pregnancy so in order for me to get ready to be pregnant we kind of had to trick my body uh into getting ready, getting all the hormones ready. I had to take a number of different hormone medications, shots every day, pills, did just different, a lot of different medications in order to get my body ready to receive the transfer. So I did that for probably two or three months. And then we did the transfer. It was in May, the, near the end of May. And uh, luckily, the first one was successful, which in a surrogacy isn't always common. Sometimes you have to try a few times before an embryo implants. So luckily with me, it happened the first time and all the days they they did the tests and predicted when to do it, it worked. So it took about 10 to 14 days to get a positive pregnancy test. And I, I mean, for probably five, six, seven days straight, I was peeing on sticks and <laughs> taking pictures and sending them to to the parents. And I think I see a line. I think there's one there. <laughs> and so, uh, but after that, then there was a lot of going back and forth to the fertility clinic in their hometown, uh, which was about an hour and a half away from me. So I would go there 
oh goodness, probably once, once or twice a week minimum so that they could do the, all the blood work. They could monitor everything. I had ultrasounds a lot, many more ultrasounds than a typical pregnancy would have, uh, just cause they want to, they want to make sure they want to keep an eye. So I stayed with the fertility clinic, uh, in their hometown working with their doctors for about three months for maybe four months, the first trimester, a little bit beyond. And then after that, once the 12 weeks hits, the first trimester is over, I can stop taking all of the shots and all of the medications because your body has accepted and, and you can continue on. Your body's producing the proper amount of hormones to keep baby growing strong. So I didn't have to take any of the medications anymore, which was nice because I had been taking needles in my butt for about five months, six months. So I was over it. <laughs> it was a lot of needles. <laughs> happy to be done with that. Huh? I was happy to be done with that. Yeah. So that happens at the end of the first trimester. Then I can stay in my hometown. I get my own OBGYN and I'm able to continue my appointments with them which is still more appointments than typical. I was seeing them probably every two weeks for the majority of the pregnancy. I had quite a few ultrasounds as things were going on, um, just to monitor everything. Well, after the first trimester, it progresses more or less like a typical pregnancy other than the amount of appointments you have to go to. But there's no more needles, there's no more medications, your body's ready to go, it's doing the right things, it's, it's growing baby strong, giving all the nutrients. So you just, you just kind of hang out and you, and you hang out with baby, sometimes watch Netflix, <laughs> and you go to appointment. Our due date was February 5th of 2020, and I ended up delivering on February 6th. 2020. But I, I actually went into labor on the 5th. But I didn't end up delivering until the 6th, though. So it was pretty close. <laughs> up until that point, like, everything was great. It was all wonderful. All the tests came back great. The baby was growing as he should be. He was checking off all the boxes. And, and it was just a completely pr healthy pregnancy. Everything was as it should be. Um, all the appointments. Yep. Everything's looking great. So on the fifth, I started feeling contractions. I went into labor probably mid morning ish. I kept, kept an eye on the contractions. I was timing them. Uh, everything felt as normal as it, I think supposed to, cause I had already done it. It felt the same as when I was pregnant with my daughter. Uh, and then, I called the hospital, told them, you know, I think it's time. I went in at about 8.30 at night, and uh, the baby was born by 11.30, 11.30 at night, just before midnight on February 6th. And did Sarah and Brady kind of, did they meet you at the hospital, or how? when did they show up? When we got there, we, uh, we had to be assessed by a a few different doctors and and then once we knew for sure like yep this it's time cuz you, you hear those stories sometimes you get there and the the nurses are like mm, you're only like 1 centimeter dilated so maybe go home and relax take a bath do your things and then and then maybe come back so i didn't want them to have to 
drive there if it wasn't time. And then they, anyway, yeah, I didn't want them to have to drive there if it wasn't time. So we made sure it was time. We called them. They had, it, it was right at due date. So they had a bag ready to go. Everything was ready. They uh, got in the car. It was about an hour and a half drive. Uh, so we'll say it probably took them about two hours once they got in the car. And when they arrived, I was going into the OR for an emergency C-section. So they got there just as I was going in. So Sarah was able to get her scrubs on. She had to put on a full set of scrubs and she came into the OR with me and sat with me. She was right at my head, right beside me, holding my hand and she was stroking my hair and she was just there for me the whole time. What was that conversation like while she was there? Oh, (laughs) I remember, I remember her just constantly leaning over to me and telling me, you're doing amazing. You know, this is, this is, this is amazing. You're so amazing. I just keep on, keep on going, like just all kinds of really, really supportive words and, and talking. And she, she just was a really good calming presence for me. She made me feel like somebody was there with me the whole time. And even after her son was born, I, I remember having to look at her and say, go see your son. You don't need to stay here. Go see your son. And so she's like, are you sure? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Go see your son. Why did you need an emergency C-section? When I came into the hospital and they hooked me up, um, for those who have been pregnant or have had children, they might they might know what I'm talking about. There's like a belt that goes around uh, your big pregnant belly. And there's kind of a little circular pad that sits on the top. And it's measuring what they call the variance between contractions. So again, if you've had children or gone through it, there's a strip that they print that's kind of right beside the bed. That's a long, it almost looks like a ECG strip. And it's, it's a wave that's going up and down and up and down and up and down. So between contractions, there should be a very large wave that shows babies moving again, baby, baby's happy again, because when uterus is contracted, the baby's all up in arms and isn't loving it. So once the uterus relaxes, the baby should be able to relax as well. And there should be a very big variance. However, when they hooked me up, there wasn't a very big variance. It was just kind of the same the whole way, whether I was in contraction or not. Uh, so they, they hooked me up and they, they tried to find the heartbeat, which instantly I was terrified because I'm like, Oh my goodness, something's wrong. But they found, they found the heartbeat and he was beaten strong. It was 150, 160, which is normal. Uh, so that was a moment of absolute relief because I, I was like, okay, good. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So they had the different doctors come in. There was the resident and there was the student and all, all the different medical doctor uh, levels came, came in and, and they were all checking me out and telling me what they thought. And uh, a lot of people were coming in and going, Oh, that's strange. Hmm. I'm going to go talk to 
this person and see what they think. And there was a lot of like collaborating on what they thought was going on. That took, that was probably about an hour, an hour, an hour and a half of that till they kind of started to realize like, hmm, what is this and why is it happening? So they moved me into a delivery room. At this point, I was still just in just a regular checkup type of room. And they moved me into a delivery room and they were giving me an epidural, which was fantastic because with my daughter, I didn't have an epidural. <laughs> I, I lived in a small town and they didn't have anesthesiologists on call. So it was, it was nice. Anyway, <laughs> so they had given me an epidural and were kind of getting me ready for things. They told me I was about five centimeters dilated. And then they said they wanted to break my water, which hadn't broken yet. So they did that manually and they said that they found meconium in it, which meconium is like baby poop in utero, which is very, very dangerous because baby can inhale it and then it gets stuck in their airways. However, that did not happen. They just noticed that there was baby poop and that can sometimes tell us that baby's in distress because baby might get stressed and then poop and then he he's upset and anyway so they noticed that and with the variants and a few of them collaborating on what to do they decided that they didn't want to wait for me to dilate fully to be able to have a vaginal birth, which is what I had with my daughter. Uh, they wanted to take me in for an emergency C-section. They felt that something was going on that was worrisome enough that they needed to, they needed to bring us in and get baby out. Did they give you all this information or were you just kind of left to wonder, wow, I wonder what's happening? They did. It helps. I work in healthcare. So I, understand a lot of what they were saying, even if they weren't talking to me. However, the the staff did a pretty good job of trying to include me in, in a lot of what was going on and trying to, they were very sensitive and, and understanding of trying to give me the information. So I wasn't just kind of laying there going, what is happening? <laughs> and I can't move because I've had an epidural. And I would imagine they would, it's kind of a balance they have to go with in, in keeping you fully informed versus, you know, telling you more than you need to know or, or having you go into a panic, right. which would not help anyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure they've seen a wide variety of that. I'm sure they've given lots of info and the, the person was stone faced and I'm sure they've given not very much info and the person is absolutely freaking out. And then, and then all in the middle. So it helps that I have a healthcare knowledge already in my job. So I, I could understand a lot of the things they were saying without requiring them to have to really come over and, and give me a full explanation. So that, that was helpful. Uh, but yeah. And it also helped that I had already had the epidural because as soon as they decided they wanted to do an emergency C-section, I would have had to wait longer to get an epidural if I didn't have it already. So luckily they had already done that and I was more or less ready to, to go into the OR. We were trying to hold off and wait as long as we could to try to get either Sarah or Brady to be able to come in. I, I wanted it to be Sarah, but either one could have, could have worked and and we were trying to wait and trying to wait, but eventually it kind of just, no, we got to go. We got to go. Luckily, they got there on time. So they brought me into the OR and there was a big team of people 
And I remember laying there and they, they set up the, there's a big curtain. So you can't really see what's happening and you can't really feel your body. But at the same time, I can remember feeling like somebody was grabbing my, my hips or my waist and just like rocking me back and forth violently almost to, to, I don't know, to, they were, they were cutting obviously and opening and getting baby out, but it just really felt like someone was grabbing my hips and rocking me back and forth. And I was laying there and Sarah was sitting beside me and holding my hand and they got baby out and we heard him make a couple squeaking noises. And I remember looking over at the clock in the room. I turned my head and I looked over at the clock and it was between 11.30 and midnight, I can't remember the exact time, and I turned to Sarah and I said, February 6th. And she said, yep, February 6th. I'm like, February 6th. February 6th is his birthday. <laughs> and we both kind of had a a little smile and a couple tears, and and then I, I had to tell her to go see her son. The NICU team was in the room. They were waiting for the delivery there was five or six of them as well in the room. There was a lot of people in this room, uh, but the, the NICU team was there and waiting because of the meconium in or the baby poop in the, the, my water before it broke. And because of the, the variants or the not, not big variants, they, they were there waiting. And then when, when they took him out and they brought him over, they kind of, the NICU was doing their thing. We could hear him making noises. So in my head, I'm, I'm laying there and thinking, wow, this, I, I did this. I, I, wow, <laughs> I, I did it. I did it. I did this thing. And, and there's a baby over there and he was making noise. He wasn't crying, but he was like cooing kind of. He was, he was kind of making some noises. I could hear him. The nurses came over to me and they said, we don't want him to cry because of the meconium. They want to be able to suction out his airways before he were to take a big breath or to, to cry. So in my head, that made total sense why he wasn't crying. It just, it, I was like, yeah, that's totally, yep, do your thing. And uh, they were saying, we're going to clean him up and we're going to take him over to the NICU and do an assessment. And so... They did. They would, they cleaned him up and Sarah went over and saw him for a minute. And then they were taking him over to the NICU and Sarah came back to me for a minute. And then I had to kind of give her a push to say, go be with your son. <laughs> and uh, so she did. And then they, they kind of stitched me back up and, and I went back out into the recovery room there. And I remember seeing Brady. Brady came over to me. And he gave me a big hug. I couldn't move. I was, I was epiduraled into my bed. <laughs> and uh, he came over and gave me a big hug and was crying and was saying, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so at this point, no, nobody really knew anything bad was happening at all. We, we all just kind of thought like, okay, yeah, there was meconium and, and he needs to be assessed by NICU. But even in the delivery room, everybody kind of gave us a sense that like, this is normal. It's fine. He'll, you know, he's just going to go over there for a day and, and it'll be fine. And that's comforting because they see it every day. Right. Exactly. We were at a, a very, it's called McMaster Hospital, which is a children's hospital. It's, it's a, if, if there's anywhere in the province other than sick kids in Toronto that was going to be able to, to do this, it was them. 
Did Sarah and Brady know ahead of time that it was going to be a boy? They did. Yeah, we did a private little gender reveal. So they came to my OB appointment uh, after I had done an ultrasound and they knew what the gender was. So they handed, we asked them to put it in an envelope and seal it. And so they gave me the envelope. And then I don't know if you've ever seen the gender reveals where it's powder. So there's either like a pink powder or a blue powder and you might to throw it in a ball or in a, a pinata or something like that, right? Gender reveals are becoming more and more creative these days from what oh, I can see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's just there's some amazing ones I've seen online. It's, it's a big deal. <laughs> so anyway, they asked me to, they had one pouch of each powder. And while we were in the hospital, I went into the bathroom in the lobby, the big hospital bathroom, and opened the envelope and found out that it was going to be a boy. So I took the blue powder and put it in there. They had a little football because Brady really likes football. <laughs> so they had a little football that I put the powder in and sealed it all back up. And then I threw out the pink stuff and washed it and made sure there was no lingering powders anywhere. <laughs> and then they took that home and they had their own little, it was just the two of them, a private little gender reveal. So they knew that it was going to be a boy. That's awesome. <laughs> and did they pick out an, a boy's name ahead of time? They, yeah, they did. They struggled a little bit. They had a few options, but they ended up uh, naming him Sam after Brady's grandfather. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut. With Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic, go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. 
And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Sam was not doing well, unfortunately, right from the beginning. He, I didn't find out any of this until the next morning, but that first night he was having multiple seizures. He couldn't hold up his own weight. He wasn't really making noises. He wasn't doing the things that babies should be doing. So they decided they wanted to try hypothermic therapy, which with uh, brain damage sometimes can be helpful. If, if you can drop the temperature of the brain, it can slow, sometimes reverse the damage that's been done to the tissue. So they had done an MRI prior. They had found that Sam had HIE. He was diagnosed with HIE, which is, uh, stands for hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So hypoxic is lack of oxygen. Ischemic is lack of blood flow and encephalopathy is in the brain. So it's a rare thing that happens. And most of the time it's quite mild. It can lead to things like cerebral palsy. Uh, in severe cases. So they had determined that at some point in the 24 hours prior to me delivering Sam or the emergency C-section that something had happened and the blood flow to his brain was severely diminished. So he wasn't getting the proper amount of oxygen to his brain. So the tissues were actually dying in his brain in the last 24 hours while I was in labor, pretty much. He, uh, the first night they, they determined this and, and then they, uh, put him in the hypothermic therapy. There was a, a lot of, a large neurological team involved in his care. He was put in the hypothermic therapy and luckily his mom and dad were still able to touch him and, and kind of bond with him in that way. But they were trying this. They do it for 72 hours and they, they put baby in the cooling therapy for 72 hours and then they slowly start to warm baby back up. And then they do another MRI to see where the brain is at, what the tissues are looking like, if there's activity. So while this is all going on, they're in the NICU doing this, and I'm in the 
uh, like mother's ward, I guess, or delivery ward in my room, kind of being told what's going on. So I, I remember the next day, a social worker, her name was Carla. She was fantastic and lovely. And she had been involved in, in our case before, before Sam was even born, because it's common for the hospital to have a social worker involved in a surrogacy situation, just so they're for their hospital's sake, for everybody's sake, somebody's involved, right? So, and she came into my room and she was so kind. <laughs> and she had, was telling me about the struggles through the night and what was going on with Sam and what the plan was. And I, I think after that, I remember laying in the hospital bed and I just, I was sobbing for hours. Like just, for hours. And then that night I couldn't sleep. I remember laying in the hospital bed and just staring at, you know, those hospital clocks, they make so much noise and they, they sit there and they tick so loud. And I remember laying there and watching the clock and just watching the seconds go by because that's all my brain could do. I couldn't, I couldn't think or function or anything. I just had to watch the seconds tick because then I was doing something. I couldn't, I couldn't think about what was happening. I just couldn't do it. And there was so much time. This this hypothermic treatment is three 24-hour periods yes, of yeah. everyone just waiting. Yeah. 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 The worst, the worst three-day wait ever. Because you just hope and pray and hope and pray that it's going to give us some hope, some some results, something good is going to come out of this. So yeah, it was, it was a long three days. Brady and Sarah were staying at the Ronald McDonald house, which was right across the street. I'm not sure if you guys have, do you guys have that in the States? Yes. Okay. So we have one right across the street from that hospital because it's the children's hospital and they were staying there and like that company and that organization is just fantastic. They were amazing. I was never over there, but I heard a whole lot of the things that Brady and Sarah were saying and just, just all the good things to say about them. It was wonderful, especially since they were out of town. So to have a place for them to be able to stay at right across the street so they could be there with their son was, it was really amazing. They were able to stay there while it was all going on. I was kind of being monitored and I was kept in the hospital a couple days longer than typical. I think just because of what was going on and Sam was born late at night on a Thursday. So then the Saturday, Sunday, there were like the social worker wasn't there. Their specialists aren't there at the hospital. Right. So to deal with that kind of thing. So they had me stay until Monday so that I could talk to the social worker again and kind of have a plan going forward what was going on. So I was released from hospital Monday and I went home still unsure, still not really sure where this was going to end up, how things were going to go, what was going to be the result of the cooling therapy. And I was still in touch with Sarah and Brady, they came to see me a few times while I was in the hospital and they'd come over and talk to me and, and give me updates and tell me what was going on. 
And then once I left the hospital, they were texting, calling, and just kind of keeping me up to date as best they could. So the Tuesday is when Sam had warmed. So Monday actually is when they took Sam off of the cooling therapy or it was finished. And then they started to warm him back up again. So Tuesday he was, he was back to normal body temperature and they did another MRI. Um, and then Sarah and Brady met with the entire neuro team and the NICU team. There was, I was told there was about 10 doctors in there as well as a social worker and OB and all the people that were involved in his care. And every single one of them recommended termination. Not one of them thought that it would be viable for him to, to try to survive. They thought that his injuries were just too severe and his quality of life would be not very good. So mom and dad had a pretty hard decision to make to decide what they were going to do uh, and and what that was going to look like if they wanted to to try to raise Sam or not given his extensive extensive brain damage so that was Tuesday and then from that point on I didn't talk to Sarah or Brady for a few days. Um, it was mostly the social worker that I was in contact with for a few days. And she was the one who actually told me that um, Brady and Sarah had decided to take Sam off of his supports and they were going to let him pass, pass away. So they did that. Uh, they took him off and they got 36 hours they they tell me sometimes they got 36 hours of the best baby hugs and snuggles they've ever had <laughs> yep they got to hug and snuggle and and be with sam for 36 hours and then after 36 hours he passed away and that was about a week after he was born it ended up being seven days later <clears throat> And it was the social worker that brought you that news. Yeah. And I, I understand because they, they were just so consumed in, in their own grief and what was happening with them at, at the hospital. And I just, I totally get it. I, I understand. And Carla was kind of the go between for, for a couple days for them and me because it was just easier for them to have her do that as opposed to they're trying to to spend the last few hours with their son but then they'd have to the responsibility of trying to deal with me i just no it wasn't so it was good that that the social worker was involved and i had i had people that were there with me and and were able to give me support my parents had come from out of town they were helping me with my daughter and then they stayed after i got out of the hospital for i think they stayed for four or five days to help me because i had also just had like major abdominal surgery so i couldn't 
move around too much. I couldn't walk too much. So they stayed and, and they were a very big help. And they were mostly they were able to just, you know, keep my daughter occupied. They'd take her out. They'd play games with her, those kind of things. So um, that and then I also had my boyfriend there with me. He had been through this with me the whole time. He, he was, he spent every moment at the hospital with me. He experienced the loss with me. He was there the whole time. So he was also there. And then my daughter, she was, she was really amazing too. <laughs> I mean, no doubt your, your family felt bad for Sarah and Brady, obviously as well, but you're their actual family. They want to do what they can for you. Yeah. 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 There was a lot of just heartache and, and just feelings of grief and loss all around for so many people. I felt, I felt sort of terrible for Sarah and Brady because through the whole surrogacy journey that I had with them, they didn't get their family or friends involved because of their past loss and, and their, uh, their family and friends were involved in that pregnancy and, and that loss. It was too hard and devastating for the family. Everybody was so sad. And so when they decided to do a surrogacy journey, they didn't tell many people because they didn't, if just in case it doesn't go as planned, they didn't want to upset their whole family again. So. I remember the first couple of days really being concerned that they were alone, that they didn't have anybody there with them. But luckily, Carla had told me that they did. They called a couple of family members. There was people there. So that that made me happy. That that was comforting. I saw on your Instagram, one of the things that you wrote was, I'm sorry I couldn't do better for you. Did you did you feel any sense of that you were at fault at all? I think it's funny as soon as you say that I start crying. <laughs> I the amount of guilt and yeah, yeah, just guilt that I carried for so long after that was devastating. It was for months all I could think about was what I did wrong. And maybe if I hadn't walked my dog the day before, or maybe if I hadn't have washed the dishes or, and just very irrational things in my educated healthcare mind. But at the time, that's all I could think about. I, you know, I was, I, I did this journey. It took like two years. It took a long time and, and put so much time and effort and into it and, the one thing I was supposed to be able to provide at the end of it, I couldn't. And it was just de devastating for so long. I was in therapy for quite some time. Um, the first three months after Sam passed away, um, was, was really tough. I remember there was days, days where I wouldn't get out of bed. I I just couldn't. I, it was, if I made it to the bathroom, that was, that was a a big deal that day. I I just could not function. I would get into the shower and then I would just sit in, in the shower for hours, 
I just couldn't, couldn't function. It was, it was awful. And, um, unfortunately at the time I had been dealing with some housing issues. So my daughter and I had decided to, uh, relocate back to my hometown, which is a couple hours away from where, where we are now or where my job is and move in with, uh, my boyfriend at the time and his kids. Uh, we had talked about it and decided that's what we were going to do. And two, two months after Sam passed, my daughter and I packed up our, our four bedroom house and, and put it in storage and moved in with, with them. And then a month later, he, he kicked us out and it was just really devastating. It was, I, I just, yeah, I think I just so wholeheartedly believed in that relationship and, and the support it had been giving me after Sam passed. And I just fully believed in it. And so it really did feel like the whole world was pulled out from underneath me in a matter of months. And I hit rock bottom after that. He kicked us out and I was too ashamed to tell my family or friends or anything. So I, I uh, went to a hotel and I stayed there for a day. And then the second two days and the second day I was there, I tried to take my own life. It was a depressive state that I just can't even begin to describe it. It was, it was a dark hole, a pit <laughs> that with no ladder and, and quicksand below me. It was just, it was awful. Luckily, I, I wasn't successful in that. And I spent some time in the hospital after that as, as I needed to. And then I started working with, um, a couple more therapists. I already had my psychiatrist and a therapist I had been working with after Sam passed. And I just added more to, to my repertoire. And in, in those moments in the hospital, and I've felt so terrible, but I knew I had to make a decision as to I was just going to stay in this pit or I was going to climb the mountain. It was one or the other. There's no in between. So I decided I was going to climb the mountain. That was it. And I didn't have not looked back. No, I have not looked back. Not one time. I, I decided that life was worth living and and I you know I have my daughter which I would be devastated if if anything ever happened and I regret regret the decision I had made and that could have possibly left her alone and luckily I've had a lot of help since then one of the most devastating parts of it is that when he he kicked us out and his family and everybody that was involved, we never talked to them again. They disappeared and we never heard from them ever again. Not one of them. It's like they wanted to pretend that we didn't even ever exist. And having gone through the loss, like with Sam, with him and his family were involved. And then all of a sudden it was like a whole bunch of new losses. Like, I, cause, cause they're just gone. You, you can't, you don't talk to them. You don't see them till this day. I still have not ever heard from any of them ever again. And, uh, it, it felt like a whole lot of losses on top of a devastating loss already. 
It was tough. It was tough for me and my daughter. I've I've heard of other people who um, who are diagnosed with terminal cancer, mm-hmm. and prior to the diagnosis, they had lots of friends, but after that, they have some people who they were even close friends with that they never hear from again, mm-hmm. and it's so odd to me. But for those people that never contact the the person again, it's uh, is it? I think it's just is it because they don't know what to say. Or they don't know how to help. Maybe they want to help, but they don't know how. And the safest thing is to just block you out. Is that is that why your boyfriend kicked you out of the house? I think, yeah, I think I was, I mean, it was a huge loss. I was a lot to deal with. And as much as I thought I was trying as hard as I could, obviously his experience was was different than than what I thought it was or what what I was being communicated. Um, I didn't know how bad it was. However, I think him and, and anybody in those positions, friends of people who are going through something really, really traumatic, like a terminal diagnosis or loss, it's people are very uncomfortable with loss and and trauma and talking about these things. They're just very uncomfortable with it. And so I think human nature, not that I agree with this, I don't, but human nature is typically to just push it away. Anything that makes them uncomfortable and they don't want to deal with, regardless of how close the person may or may not have been to you, whether you say you love them or not, they just naturally want to get it away. And, and unfortunately that hurts people in the process, especially when a lot of these things like loss or terminal diagnosis is not their fault. You know, it's not their fault that they've been diagnosed with this or that there has been a loss like with mine, with Sam and people unfortunately can't, can't deal with it. And, and a lot of the times it's their own mental health that they're thinking about. And, and I get that. I do get it. Uh, however, it's, it's tough. It's tough to be the one in the situation that, that was struggling. And then to, to be told like, I can't, I can't deal with you. It's yeah, Mm -hmm. it was tough. I I remember a lot of times it went through my head, like, well, if he's given up on me, then I'll just give up on me. Because he's telling me that he loves me so much and we're going to be together forever and all the, the fun relationship things, and then it's just gone. So if he's given up on me, then I'll give up on me. It sounds like your daughter may have saved your life. Oh, yeah. If she's the one that gave you the incentive to push through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's amazing. She's She's saved my life and more ways than one. <laughs> it's always just been her and I. Her father left when I was pregnant and it's it's just been her and I and we have one of those like Gilmore girls type bonds. <laughs> it's 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 special and she's yeah, she's she's a very very important part of why I'm still here. I spent all last summer uh, with those therapists and my psychiatrist working on um, talk therapy and medications, and we got my sleep back in track, back on track, because it was really struggling for a while. And you really, no matter what you're going through, you really can't heal 
if you can't have sleep. Sleep is so important to being able to process things and heal. So we got that under control and uh, I stayed. So Sam passed February 13th. So he was born on the 6th. He passed on the 13th. And then my daughter and I, I guess, essentially kind of became homeless at the end of May. So I spent the summer, we spent the summer with my parents and my friends and just being surrounded by people that love us and, and making memories and having fun. I decided that I wanted to try some new self-care things. I got big into meditation and, and I really value my time where I get to walk like my dog and I listen to a lot of podcasts and like uh, Oprah's podcast last summer saved my life too. I, she's my girl. <laughs> she, she was great. She has a lot of really good self-care things. So that was really helpful. I started running every day. I would just get up and I would run and, and I wasn't training for anything and I wasn't trying to follow a program. I would just get up and I would run as far as I wanted to, as long as I wanted to. That actually, that post you saw on Instagram, I had been going for a run that morning and all of a sudden in the middle of the run, I just stopped and sat down and wrote that post. I was having a moment and I was like, I think I know what I want to say now. It was like another therapy for me. It became a time when I got to, I could process things. It was an hour, an hour and a half every day that I knew I had that was going to be my time to think about whatever I wanted. I, I remember a few runs. I, I was running and I was formulating a letter, a, a, a fictitious letter that I would have sent to to my ex-boyfriend or to his family and and just and things like that really helped it helped to to have the time to sit and think about that it was very healing would you recommend being a surrogate to others who might be considering it it it's a tough question considering the outcome of my journey however yes i i really i really would i i i believe that the surrogacy program and science and and what we can do now is just it's amazing and and the fact that other women can carry a baby for you know another couple it's it's it just is awe inspiring that science has been able to do that and so i am a very rare case of this it's it is almost next to impossible to find a story like mine with an ending that wasn't great. <laughs> Most of them are just, you know, it's exactly what you'd expect. You, 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 there's a baby and everybody's happy and there's pictures and there's, there's all the great things. And all the other surrogates that I became friends with on the website and the agency and then they, they have a Facebook group that's just for the surrogates and everybody kind of chats and all of their stories are that. So I, I guess I would say don't don't be scared of my story. I know it's it's tough, but how, whether it's surrogacy or not, childbirth can be and pregnancy can be dangerous in some situations and and it, it it's never it's not always gonna gonna be great. But I would definitely recommend it. Even with the ending that I had, the, the life experiences and, and the things that I've learned and the friends that I've gained from Sarah and Brady, like it, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah. Do you think you'll ever do it again? 
I actually offered to do it again for Sarah and Brady. I had told them that um, I understood that if what they were looking for or, or if they were looking for a different one or apparently the agency that I had been working with was uh, kind of saying that a lot of other surrogates were a bit timid of the story because of the way it ended and, and they weren't too keen on working with them because they were too fearful of it which I get, I understand, but I had offered to to do it again for them. And they had graciously said thank you, but decided that for their own mental health, they needed to do a completely new journey. And I understand that. I, I completely understand it. I, I get it. Um, however, that being said, I don't think I would do it again for a completely new couple or a new journey. I think because of the way it went down for me and the way the, the situation ended, it would be a really tough journey for me mental health-wise. I think I would be very scared the whole time and uh, it, would, it would be really tough. So I, I, don't think, I don't think I could do it again. But it would, have, it would have been really tough if you had done it again for them as yeah. well. It You'd would've. be just as scared. I mean, I'm. I I just can't comprehend what a a generous thing for you to offer to put yourself through that again. That's yes. just amazing. I yeah. I think there was a part of me that thought I still owed them. You know, like I I had signed up for, I'd signed up for this, and I wanted to give them a child. I wanted to give them a baby, and and. For a long time, I didn't think I did, and I, I felt like I kind of still owed them that. With lots of work with my therapist and with myself and, and talking to my psychiatrist, I've, I've come to accept that I did give them. I did give them what I set out to give them. I did do what I set out to do. They, they had a son, and they will always have Sam, that's always going to be their son. So I did set out to do what I had originally wanted to do. It just unfortunately had a really tragic ending. Well, if it was a routine pregnancy and surrogacy, we wouldn't be talking about it on this podcast. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I mean, true. yeah. <laughs> yeah, surrogacy alone is very rare and uncommon. And then attach the the tragic story of Sam it just makes it a little bit more rare. <laughs> if someone's interested in learning more about how to become a surrogate, what are where would they go? What are some resources that they would find? In Canada, you could go to surrogacy.ca. That's a the Canadian agency that I was part of. There's lots of information on there. Um the girl that runs it. Her name is Sally. She's wonderful. She has lots of information. She has been a surrogate herself. Uh, so it's a great, great place to get some information about being a surrogate. Or if you're, if you're looking to try to find a surrogate, if your parents, intended parents that are looking for a surrogate in Canada, you could go there. International couples do come and apply to these as well. Like I had couples from Germany and Switzerland, China, Australia, a whole bunch of different places that had contacted me. So it's not just for Canadian couples. However, it is just for Canadian surrogates. And then in the States, 
it would be, I found one that I really liked called surrogate.com. And there's a lot of information on there about it. I also found out that in, in the U.S., surrogacy laws are governed by state laws, not federal. So it would be different depending on what state you're in as to what the laws are surrounding being a surrogate uh, in the U.S. So I thought that was interesting, whereas in Canada, it's, it's national. It's a federal law. So uh, I, f- I found that interesting. Also in the U.S., you would you would need to budget a bit more money. The average surrogacy in the U.S., they're told to budget about $120,000 to $150,000 for start to finish. And then in Canada, it's about eighty dollars to $100,000 because of the non-compensation. Well, I think uh, there may be some people that listen to this podcast and find your story to be a good resource as well. I mean, hearing someone that's actually gone through the whole process in spite of the outcome uh, I think is going to be helpful to people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I remember wanting or hoping that I could come across somebody who had been through it while I was going through it, and it's tough. So, yeah, I'm happy to answer questions or talk to anybody about their their journey or whatever they'd like. I'm, I'm happy to, to do that. I'd love to get some more attention to surrogacy and the surrogacy programs, as well as pregnancy and infant loss. It's it's kind of a taboo topic in, in the world, unfortunately. It's really too bad because, you know, if a child loses a parent, they're considered an orphan. If a spouse loses a partner, they're considered a widow. But if a parent loses a child, there's no name for that. It's, it's like we just have to kind of try to forget that it even happened and move on. And, and it's these losses, whether it's miscarriage or neonatal or infant, is they're just devastating for parents and and families and I just I really would like to bring some more awareness and just the ability to have open conversations surrounding it that it's not a taboo topic that it's okay to talk about these losses it doesn't have to scare everybody so in Canada there's a really great resource it's the Pale Network Pregnancy and Infant Loss and they have some great resources there they have support groups and then in the US they have babystepsfoundation.org and that's a support for pregnancy and infant loss as well so if you're experiencing any of these these things unfortunately there are some great resources out there from people that are there to talk to you to help you through it and you're you're not alone there are there's tens of thousands of parents every year that that go through miscarriage and pregnancy and infant loss and and you're just you're not alone reach out october is a national or International Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And October 15th is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Day. And internationally, they try to do what we call the wave of light on that day. And at 7 p.m., no matter where you are in the world, you light a candle and you keep it lit for at least an hour. And then every time zone across the world will have like a wave of light to remember all of the infants and babies that were lost too soon in the world. If you'd like to contact Emily, her email address will be in the show notes for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 90. I'll also have links to the other resources she mentioned. When I planned the date for the release of this episode here in October of 2021, I had no idea that October is International Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. I like how it worked out, though. 
And in keeping with the pregnancy theme, one week from today, we'll have a special bonus episode. This one will be full of listener stories about childbirth. I think you'll enjoy it. And the newest Raw Audio bonus episode, Raw Audio 18, is live right now and available to $5 a month patrons. Not to mention, you get new episodes of this podcast without any ads. In the latest episode, a woman calls 911 in a panic because her ex-husband is breaking in. Send somebody. Send somebody right now. I think my husband, my ex-husband is going to try to break in now. A woman calls 911 because of her deceased husband, but she doesn't quite tell the whole story. Can you get in there with him? I've been there trying to do mouth-to-mouth, but he's cold and stiff. And a woman calls 911 after discovering her deceased mother. Hey, how old is your mother? Oh, God. She's 82. I think she's dead. I think she's been murdered or killed or something. You can get access to all the 911 Raw Audio bonus episodes by signing up as a supporter at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And in the podcast Facebook group recently, we talked about the concept of regret. The question was, have you ever thought about doing something and decided not to do it, and then later you regretted it? I posted my own personal story related to this, And a bunch of listeners posted theirs, too. In that group, we love thought-provoking discussions. And we even talk about the podcast episodes sometimes. If you'd like to join us, head over to whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. And this week's listener story actually came from that Facebook discussion about regrets. I hope you enjoy it. And I'll be back here in one week with lots of stories about childbirth. See you then. Hi, Scott. I'm pretty much addicted to your podcast. I binged listened to it till I was all caught up, and I can't wait for each episode that comes out. So keep up the good work. You had asked recently if people had stories about regrets that they have, and my regret involved a young man, I'm going to call him Joe, and I'd heard a rumor in the community that he was kind of a reckless driver. Not long after that, I heard that Joe was dating my friend's daughter. And we weren't close friends, kind of acquaintances. You know, we knew each other's names and each other's children. And I'm going to call the daughter Sue. So Joe was dating Sue. And I thought about saying something to Sue's mother about Joe's reputation for driving recklessly. But I thought, I don't really have any facts. It's just rumors and... I'm just going to try to mind my own business. Well, not long after that, Joe and Sue were in a car together, and Joe ran a stop sign, and Sue was killed. And the car that he and the other car involved in the accident had three people in it, and two of them died. It was a father and his teenage daughter were also killed in that accident, And ever since then, if I've had an opportunity to speak up for someone and try to advocate for them, I am just compelled to do that. The accident happened very close to my parents' home, and the family put up a little cross and a little memorial near that intersection. And so I think about that every time I visit my parents. And I'd just like to encourage other listeners to 
follow those little nudges, that inner voice that says, hey, something isn't right here. Um, because you, you never know if we speak up, we may be able to impact someone's life for the good. We may be able to save a life. So keep up the good work. Thanks. Uh.